Hello and welcome to episode 33 of what we're listening to. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of your hosts. And with me, as always, is my friend and the visionary behind the Toe Macarena, Asher. How are you doing, sir? The Toe Macarena? You heard me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember it well from my childhood. <laughs> I mean, I made it, right? Whatever. I'm good, man. I We have now passed how old I am, which is uh, getting a bit weird for me, but uh, I guess I that's bound to happen. And we've reached my age, so there you go, everyone. <laughs> you now know the age of our, our um, the hosts. For now. It will change. Um, so before we get to follow-up, I do have a quiz for you. Mm-hmm. Um, slight spoilers for our homework ahead. Uh, but uh, I got given this episode uh, a legendary figure called Lead Belly, who was a mm-hmm. guitarist folk singer from the 1930s. Um, super, super important figure in the blues folk world. Um, he's credited with uh, popularizing a number of songs that became very, very famous, like House of the Rising Sun or Black Betty. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, he was also very famously covered by Nirvana in their acoustic set. Uh, oh. The song, Where Did You Sleep Last Night? Um, wow. Very, very famous. So during the recording of that Nirvana performance, Kurt Cobain kind of jokingly talks about how he loves Lead Belly. It's his favorite artist, he says. And he wants to buy Lead Belly's guitar. And the estate wants to sell it to him for $500,000. Um, which at the time would have been the most expensive guitar ever sold. And he ended up not buying it. Right. So my question for you, Asher, is that somewhat ironically, the guitar... Kurt Cobain's guitar from that acoustic set last year was sold at an auction and set the new world record for an expensive guitar. So I'll give you multiple choice. How about that? Yeah, sure. So how much was Kurt Cobain's guitar sold for last year? Was it A, $750,000? This is American, obviously. Mm-hmm. B, mm-hmm. $1.5 million. C, $4 million. D, $6 million. Or E, Eight million. Oh, for goodness sakes. I remember seeing this article. Um, what was C again? C is $4 million. I might actually go for whatever B was. I don't think it, I don't know. I could be wrong, but I just don't want to go too outlandish. Was it 1.2 million? Okay, you went for B, which is 1.5. That is 1. unfortunately 5, yeah. incorrect, sir. Uh, how much? So in 2019, the record was set with Pink Floyd, uh, David Gilmour's Telecaster for $4 million. And then last year, they bought Kurt Cobain's acoustic guitar from the set for $6 million. My goodness. Yeah. And so like, it's, it's pretty ironic because Kurt kind of like jokes about how like, oh, it's a ridiculous kind of price to pay for a guitar, even though he loves the artist. And then his guitar gets sold for such an extravagant amount of money. That's very ironic. So this is the <laughs> left-handed acoustic one from the um, the live album. Is that the one? Yeah, it's also really weird looking. At, like it's a regular kind of dreadnought acoustic, and then it mm. has two like humbuckers, like one on the bridge and one on the one on the neck. It's really weird setup for an acoustic. I mean, yeah, I enjoyed a heart-shaped box from that live album. That was always one of my faves. Yeah. I mean that that set is pretty legendary. Yeah, yeah. You know, I never really got into um, the album before, never mind. Is that Bleach? What's the name? Um, yeah. No. Yeah. I never quite, It. yeah, i just not a big Nirvana fan, but I do like their sound and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's okay. I won't hold it against you. Yep. Nice. Um, do you have any follow-ups, sir? Um, just two random ones, or just one main one. Um, Anna B. Savage has a new song out that I Ooh. have got on my list to listen to with my nice headphones, but I have been very busy <laughs> in the past couple of days and just haven't had a chance. Or like, a, yeah, so I didn't want to like listen to her in the background because I, I really love her work. And yeah. she's got a new EP coming up like later this year. So, Oh, cool. Um, yeah, yeah, really cool. She is a great artist and I have really enjoyed her work. Um, Dig out the nice boys for that one. Yeah, and I was 
Well, and also you and I were texting last night about Indian runner and uh, some of the mm. stuff he's been up to lately. Um, I think, I don't know if I'm stealing one of your honorable mentions, but no. I think we're both waiting for album number two from that guy. Yeah. I mean, like he puts on these Instagram grabs when he's making music and they're like 20 seconds. And mm. I don't know, maybe if I was 20 years younger, that would appeal to me. But I like, I want something more than just like an Instagram grab every week. Like it's not enough musically. No, I, I'm the same. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of want like, I want him to, I want to hear the rest of the, the piece and how he gets to that moment and then goes from yeah. it and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, no, my only my mentions uh, first are about Squid. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So they have that live album coming out at the end of this month, which is, mm-hmm. sorry, it's two songs, and they did one take live for both of them. Um, mm. So I'm excited to kind of hear how that went. And then they also have Direct a, vinyl. Uh, a KEXP live performance video coming out soonish as well. So oh, cool. more Squid. And then... Yep. Um, not musically, but uh, one of my favorites, a uh, Canadian artist at the moment, a guy called Zune, which we've talked about, um, mm-hmm. he has been added to the shortlist for the Polaris Award in Canada, which is a government-sponsored arts and music prize we have in this country. Um, oh, very cool. Yeah, which I think is really exciting because it's uh, a, you know, uh, shoegaze is not an exceedingly... Uh, popular genre and he's getting some recognition in the country also as an indigenous artist getting more recognition that way and they give mm. you a big chunk of money if you win the Polaris Prize so that could you know get him on his feet to working on a second album so I'm kind of excited about that yeah so good on him good and on always him. making you know being able to make music your main gig kind of thing absolutely that's uh, great yeah that's all the follow up I have that's all I have Okay, then review time. Um, so I've been listening to an album um, by a Brisbane artist named Joff Bush. Um, now, you might not know his name, uh, but you might know the TV show which uh, he wrote for, which I'm <laughs> reviewing. It's um, a kid's animated series called Bluey. And um, it's kind of, I think it's taken the kids tv show world by storm i don't know um <laughs> but it's on disney plus and apparently i had never heard of it quite, quite popular well i mean it is a abc show here so i think it's gotten sure. bigger who knows anyway Good. um joff bush is a multi-instrumentalist well yeah i think he also calls in a lot of other instrumentalists to kind of be on his soundtracks but this is quite a joy to listen to um mm. so i I don't know if I can speak for like lots of kids shows, but I always don't really think much of kids soundtracks for like TV shows and stuff. Like they're not really highly rated, but the reason um, this came to my attention was that uh, my brother-in-law showed me um, a one episode of this show and it was based on Holst's planets. And oh, the really? whole the whole episode, yeah, it's called Sleepy Time. And the whole episode is kind of this orchestral um, sort of, uh, you know, kind of mixed up suite of different planets and the story works mm. with that too. It actually won a bunch of awards, this one seven-minute episode of this kid's show. Um, and I contacted uh, the composer on Twitter. I was like, this is amazing. Do you have an album coming out? And he's like, yeah, though I got help for, on this particular episode with the orchestration from so and so and so and so and um and then i started listening to the soundtrack for the the full kids show and it is a real joy it like to me it feels a little bit like jim guthrie's um you me and gravity soundtrack for the planet coaster game um really upbeat and joyful colorful Mm. instrumentation um and even the opening theme tune kind of drew me in. You were mentioning that Barry Sax. Oh, man. It's so good. <laughs> I'm yeah. such a sucker for a baritone saxophone. Um, it's such a character-having instrument. Like, soprano mm. and alto are kind of interchangeable. And then the yeah. Barry comes in and he's like, yeah, make him loud hooting noises. I love it. Yeah, there's like a different tone to it. And the thing that really attracted me was 
um, Joff Bush manages to kind of like make a couple of chords sound really interesting with different like bass notes. And so that Barry mm. Sachs is kind of doing this inverted bass line, stepping down. And it just, and then that, it makes me laugh. It kind of feels like a tubular bells sort of announcement of the instruments, this opening track <laughs> of the album. You know, the kids are like calling in electric guitar and they're calling in the different violin and this sort of thing. I, I did get that as well. I yeah, they're all playing the theme tune in different ways and that sort of thing. I, I thought it was a really great, it's not a, like I've watched a bunch of episodes now and it doesn't really get old. Um, it's still mm. quite a fresh sort of theme. So anyway, this this whole soundtrack has the vibe of like, kind of um a bit nintendo-y a bit family sort of um another game it reminds me of is a short hike um Mm. which is another kind of really open world sort of fun game but yeah anyway so i love that opening theme listening to the whole soundtrack like it's very perfect and very beautiful because it's for a kid's show and it's not not meant to be kind of like too gritty or too like characteristic but um (laughs) all the instruments now you know what i mean i i like i like instruments being recorded with a bit of interest and character and something different but the they're all kind of live as much as i can tell and i've seen on his Mm. instagram like Mm. he gets in the flautists and all this sort of thing and there's just great uh great instrument uh instrumentalist on this soundtrack um and so like there's a lot of uh, classical, like classical and um, romantic musical themes thrown in there a lot too. Did you notice the spring uh, reference in the main theme as well? Yeah, yeah a tiny bit. I need to, um, I need to give it another listen. Now that you talk about sleepy time, I want to give that another mm. shot too because I love. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. Um, it's not actually on the album though, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, it's it's separate, but. Yeah, anyway, as you go through the album, each track kind of has a distinct sort of genre. Like they've tried to do a bit of Dixieland. They've tried to do some like reggae elements, you know, (laughs) and there's kind of like these um, like polka sort of styles. And then there's one track which uses Puckabell's Canon, but like electronic. And and then there's also a fairies one. So it's kind of taking off um, like Irish sort of music. It really jumps around, and I think it's also nice for kids to hear different genres of music. Um, I like that as like a, a teaching moment. <laughs> but, um, yeah, a real standout for me is like the creek is beautiful, and so it's towards the end of the album, and it's a three-part song to do with this creek episode. And I just love the way he brings in these vocals and this really beautiful melody and the acoustic guitar parts. It was just a, a gorgeous kind of song. So I, I really enjoyed this bright, happy, joyful soundtrack over the past few weeks. So, yeah, because yeah. I, I think when it comes to like children's music, um, you either have your like songs crafted for singing over and over again, like your Raffi or your Peter Coombs, yeah, or yeah. you have like music that happens in the background that's not very interesting in the Teletubbies or that kind of stuff. I don't I don't I have really no know children's television. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, neither do I. But like the kind of soundtracks you get are very, I don't know, monotone. That's not the right word. Like not, uh, they don't grab attention away from what's happening on the screen. Mm. Um, but I think this music has enough character of its own that it like adds to what's happening and you can like be taken in by it and it like kind of builds on what's already going on. Um, yeah, it's kind of like the John Williams sort of thing where a lot of music, yeah. like John Williams's music actually stands by itself and people remember the themes from those movies more than like a lot of other soundtracks. And uh, sometimes the view is like, you're not supposed to take away from what's happening on the screen. Like don't, mm. you shouldn't notice the soundtrack. But I think that if you do it well, it can complement and you can do both at once. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I will say, yeah. I did also love the uh, the taxi song. The oh uh, yeah, yeah, very second wave like eighties ska music. I love that. that yeah, was so good. I feel like there was a homage to Hey Jude in a song called Fruit Bat, but maybe that was just me. I need to check it again. But it feels <laughs> like he's thrown 
thrown in a lot of stuff here. One really interesting one is the pool theme. Um, it has like a really interesting use of like non-diatonic chords. It kind of feels a little bit post-rocky um, and <laughs> like some, it has this solo that reminds you of the Risk of Rain soundtrack. Like it's just ridiculous how, um, how complex it is just for this one episode about them going to the pool. It's, it's, it's quite cool. So <laughs> I think a lot of work has gone into this soundtrack. And um, if you want to buy it on vinyl, you're looking at some very steep prices. It's a cult classic over here, apparently. Um, the subreddit was going mad trying to find them. So, you know. That's, that's wild. Yeah. It's like there were just a couple dropped. Um, not a couple, but like a, a limited amount dropped on record store day. And now you can only get them for like 300 bucks on eBay or something. <laughs> I'm not that much of a fan, but it's cool. Yeah. It's like a picture disc. So anyway, that's that's what I've been listening to. What have you been listening to? Yeah, in a a, a very different um, headspace. Um, uh, so I've been listening to the debut record from uh, John Francis Flynn. Mm. Uh, so he's you an Irish him last episode. I did. He's an Irish musician. Um, he's also in a band, I think, called Skipper's Alley, um, who actually I have not listened to at all. But um, I talked very briefly last episode about this guy getting some attention from all these like uh, UK and Irish magazines saying like, oh, this album's going to be really good. You got to listen to mm. it. And I was like, OK, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Um, and man, they weren't lying. This album is mm. fantastic. Um, it's, it's a, incredible. it's like a really dark modern take on a load of traditional, uh, Irish folk tunes, hymns, and poems. Uh, I think mm. only one song on this record is written by, uh, Mr. Flynn himself. Uh, mm-hmm. and that's not to say that these are lazy covers because obviously all these arrangements are his and are new and wonderfully different. Um, but it's just kind of this uh, list of recognizable, mostly. I mean, I only knew two of them well before I uh, listened to these pieces, but uh, there's some famous things on here. Um, mm. A pretty famous poem, uh, excuse my pronunciation, like an Bochalin Ban or um, Come My Little Son, which is a Luke Kelly song, um, who I adore. I knew that one beforehand. Um, so, anyway. Uh, this is a really interesting kind of approach to these standards. I, I, I think that Irish music is really unique in that uh, it's one of the few kind of musical playgrounds that has like a a set of standard pieces like jazz does, but they um, are so bold, just reusing them and changing mm-hmm. them completely, like this album does. Uh, so, uh, long story short, I think this album is beautiful. I think it really captures kind of two of the major parts of Irish music out of like the three main parts where you have on one hand, this like interesting instrumentation with these traditional instruments and of course, like the classic Celtic notation. And then you have these other ones where they're really bare bones and like intimate singing pieces. Mm. Um, like Shallow Brown or Come My Little Son, which yeah. are like there's almost no instrument whatsoever, and it's all about the voice. Um, obviously, the like more 70s and 60s upbeat kind of folk Irish style is missing because it's not what this album is. Like, you don't have those old yeah. pub songs in the same way, but I think those are kind of like the major pieces that make what Irish music is. Um, and I think. Uh, John Francis Flynn does a really good job of like kind of portraying those in this setting. Um, mm. Yeah. He, he manages to integrate a very modern uh, instrumentation uh, kind of collection as well. Like you mm. mentioned traditional instrumentation, except that like when you get, did he write bring me home part one, two and three, is that his stuff? Uh, I mean, there, there are other, there, sorry, there are real other songs, but he obviously arranged them this way. Yeah. Okay. I, Cause they felt a little bit different than the others in terms of their writing style, like the repetition of certain lines. But 
I was stunned what? by this album. You you can <laughs> testify that I called you up and was like, oh my goodness. Like <laughs> the even from the very start with Lovely Joan and the way there's like this kind of keyboard sort of arpeggiated thing and then you've got this acoustic guitar, this interesting rhythm and his beautiful voice. And then mm. it kind of goes into this like jazz drum feel. Like I, I couldn't, I was like, this is so different than what I was expecting. Well, I haven't listened to a lot of traditional folk Irish stuff, um, no. but I do know the kind of singing style and the feel. But um, this was, yeah, this really floored me. I love the integration of the modern and the traditional and his voice is so bold in its harshness and, well, not harsh, but just kind of like it's very rough, if yeah. you know what I mean. It's got that kind of strength to it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It has strength. And I watched that live clip that um, came out. Mm. And, mm. yeah, it's really interesting watching him sing and how little he opens his mouth. Um, <laughs> but uh, I love that now... Um, Aylan pipes are they on this or is that a different kind of flute? I think it's a it's a flute, and I think okay. he plays it himself. Actually, a kind of flute. Wow, song. I love I love the lower octave, like the red the there's he's playing in harmony with himself. Basically, it's incredible stuff. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I think I don't know. For, to me, this fills a place. Um that i i don't know this is gonna sound a little bit ignorant to people who like really know irish music but i <laughs> i'm a huge luke kelly fan i don't know if we've really talked about him before asher he was a guy oh, too much sorry in like the in the early half of the century who kind of brought irish music back to the popular front in the country as like a form of identity and mm. popularity and he's just like big figure he's got a big old red afro like kind of um like bob ross and he's got like a big voice and sings all these pub tunes um but he also has these more kind of soft pieces about the struggle of being irish and that's songs like um come my little son is like one of his is one of his songs um oh, okay. one of his lesser known oh. ones yeah um but he's this kind of figure that like rejuvenated Irish music. And I think this album fits a similar place in my collection for me in like a in like a modern setting of like this hmm. guy is um is uh, unapologetically bringing these Irish pieces to a very new and modern way while still kind of holding together their their core Irish identity um, at the roots and doing them really well. And I think, I don't know, that makes me really happy because I think Luke Kelly's legacy is really important. Like on mm. the on the same scale as like a Dylan or Leonard Cohen or Guthrie, kind of like a, an important cultural figure. And so I, I applaud John Francis Flynn for, for doing this so well, I think. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, like him and Lancome. I, like are yeah. kind of trying to revive these songs in a modern context, I suppose. Yeah, and you can really see these two getting along, getting along, um, though in different ways. Yeah, he opened for them for a number of times. So, I That'd be amazing. Yeah, I mean that'd just be a, a wild show. Yeah, but, totally. Anyway. Yeah, so I I really hope more people pick up. I would not live always by John Francis Flynn. I think it's. It's going to be on my top five for the rest of the year. I think this album's really great. Nice. Yeah. It's great. Um, so, homework time then. Homework time. Um, so, as we mentioned at the start <laughs> of the show, Josh did, um, last episode we spun our spinner and arrived at the 1930s. Um, not the 1910s because... Yeah, we struggled a little bit with finding <laughs> it's a bit of an oopsie. It didn't regulate yeah. what decades were on the exterior yeah. wheel. Yeah, I'll fix that. Um, so <laughs> we we looked for some artists in the 1930s, and um, who, do you want me to tell listeners what I gave you? Uh, no, I'll, I'll talk about you first. Um, okay, sure. So a, a small caveat: since um, 
recording technology wasn't super available in the 1930s. Um, people didn't really make like whole records. They made like small singles and B sides and that kind of stuff. So these are by and large compilations. Unfortunately, that's just kind of the mm. way it is. Um, yeah. So I gave Asher selections of songs by the very famous Belgian-born Romani jazz guitarist Django Reinhardt. Um, his style is very well known, as is his extraordinary talent for playing guitar while having only three fingers on his left hand. So yeah. what did you think of La Chance de Or by Django Reinhardt? Yeah, I was looking up last night and most of the records put out by him were posthumously um, yeah. because... Yeah, he passed away before kind of putting together these recordings. Um, so I was introduced to Django Reinhardt in university by my good friend, Matty G. Um, he played mm-hmm. one of their songs, his songs um, at a performance, Minor Swing, which is the first track on this collection. Um, yeah. And I'd heard about this from the movie Chocolat, which is kind of, uh, it's kind of that French um sort of it's it's a french film and it has that gypsy sort of feel to it and so this music kind of worked well it was a cover it's not the best cover the original is much better it's kind of <laughs> you can hear the like the raw talent of Django Reinhardt and so yeah he was he was a guitar player before his accident um but what happened was him and his wife were in a wagon and a candle set fire to the wagon he was badly burned and lost the use of, yeah. Um, uh, now, which hand was it again? His. Um, it's his left hand. It's yeah, his so he's left. Yeah, which is rough. So he didn't have the use of his pinky and ring finger, and had to reteach himself how to play gu- the guitar. And then he discovered jazz and met, you know, his friend Stefan Grappelli, the violinist. And mm. somehow he can manage to play all of these passages with only oh, two my fingers. Goodness. Because his thumb is the one supporting. So he's really only got two to work with. And you listen to some of the runs, like these, you know, I just don't even know how he gets around the fretboard. And I don't know how he chords properly, but, yeah, you know, <laughs> because it's a jazz it's, chord. It's astounding. Not- As someone who's like a, a medium level guitar player, every time uh, yeah. I think about Django trying to play things and I'm like, this doesn't work. And yet Do we he's have so good at it. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I mean, we might. I don't think so, though. I, I don't know when he passed away, but like, I just want to be able to see that. I didn't check that out. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. Um. He's a anyway. he's a fascinating figure. Yeah, yeah, he is really fascinating. Um, I think his real name is Gene, and Django is his nickname by friends. But, um, yeah. So he formed a quintet in Paris, I believe, called the Quintet du Hot Club de France. Yeah, Quintet of the Hot Club in France, maybe. I'm not really good at my French. Uh, So (laughs) anyway, this album is kind of a collection of, yeah, um, kind of standards. And I imagine some of his own compositions. um, But, you know, you can recognize the standards like Blue Moon and um, What a Difference a Day Makes. And um, what are the others there? You know, um, Limehouse, uh, St. Louis Blues and that sort of thing. Um, but he also, I should have checked that up, which ones he's written and which ones he hasn't. Either way, he plays them very, very well. Like they are really interesting arrangements with, um, great kind of trading and solos and all this sort of stuff. Mm. And it kind of has this really nostalgic feel to it. Like after I was listening to this album, I just wanted to watch old black and white films with like, you know, (laughs) really, you know, warm kind of, uh, interesting plots and uh and i wanted to kind of hear this as the the soundtrack to it but i couldn't really and if any listeners know of any black and white old movies which have Django reinhardt music as the soundtrack please let me know um there was some also like dixieland jazz stuff in this um yeah. some of my favorites were swing 42 minor swing and the limehouse blues um now as you mentioned like Recording technology was was still kind of in its early days, so it's a pretty rough sounding recording. Like I imagine, it's not many mics in the room, and not all of them are dedicated to various instruments. Um, so it's kind <laughs> of like you know, there's not a lot of bottom end to it. Like you can hear 
the double bass, obviously, but it just it's very trebly and that sort of thing. So yeah, um, just you know, I'm not really docking points for tonally sort of things, but uh, <laughs> you know, just so you know, everyone, <laughs> just, just just docking points from Jagger right up for no no recording no. technology. I would have. I mean, I, it would have been amazing to hear like him well, really well recorded. As it is, yeah. though, like this is fantastic. Um, so I listened to there's a whole bunch. I don't have much to say about it except that it's just a fantastic, like, gypsy jazz, Romanian mm. French jazz album. So, like, yeah. I, I found it fascinating it that he, according to him, um, he was influenced by people like Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington in his, like, listening and expression of jazz. But then his own playing and version is so different from theirs. Um, mm. And it, it kind of marks the beginning of what is such a diverse genre as jazz, where, you know, Louis Armstrong in Louisiana can make songs like Hello, Dolly, and La Vie Rose, and Django can hear those and kind of make a completely different thing happen. Um, well, they were different continents as well, and yeah. so different a lot of different influences and, you know, cultural heritage and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. I don't <laughs> know a forget. lot about... Huh? Sorry. Sorry, keep going. Oh, I just don't know a lot about other jazz musicians around this time, so I can't yeah. really make informed thought. There's also, of course, the uh, the major cultural barrier to Django Reinhardt being the Nazis. <laughs> Right. Uh, who both were murderers of hundreds of thousands of Romani people, but also claimed that jazz was countercultural to Germany. Um, Hitler and Goebbels both thought this. And so, I don't know, it's kind of amazing to me that as a um, jazz-playing Romani man living in Paris, Django Reinhardt managed to survive the Second World War. It's kind of... Um, it's a yeah. crazy story. He keeps on trying to like escape the city and getting captured. Anyway, I really okay. I read up yeah. to when World War Two started um, because I was just doing a little bit of extra reading last night, but I didn't catch this. What happened? Well, he just like I mean, sensibly wants to get out of the get out of the place. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think the f- the first time he was caught by a jazz-loving German officer who kind of um, just oh kind of sent him back to town so he could keep playing, basically. I don't know. It's Wow. It's just kind of incredible that he managed to make it through such a um, hostile environment designed specifically against basically everything he lives and stands for. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating guy. Django Reinhardt. Hmm. Um, so I I found an album, as Josh mentioned at the start of the show, by uh, Lead Belly. Now, my true confession is this. This morning I was thinking, okay, check, cool. I've listened to all the things that I need to listen to and written down some things. I did not listen to this Lead Belly album. I, um, <laughs> I think because uh, because this was kind of like a blind date homework, I kind of, yeah. when we give it each other albums, I did, can you please tell me all about this album? And I will listen <laughs> to a couple of tracks later. <laughs> um, so funnily enough, a couple of Lead Billy's most famous uh, recordings aren't on this album. Um, okay. Uh, but this is a, obviously a collection of uh, songs recorded by him um, that were preserved by the Library of Congress. Uh, so, uh, Lead Belly is a fascinating figure. Um, he's kind of, to me, uh, one of the genesis points for like guitar based folk and blues music and really like the turning point for like a whole century. We, um, he's really astonishing. I don't know. Like the, the government of America you know, preserves these recordings because of how mm. important they are to the musical world. Like he's up there with like Howlin' Wolf and Tommy Johnson, these like old figures of um, African-American music. And they kind of bring these um, folk, spiritual and slave field songs to kind of the world's ears. So mm. um, that's kind of what most of these recordings are. I don't actually know 
how many of them are written by him or are just traditional songs. That's, I couldn't really parse it out on the internet. Um, yeah. But uh, Lead Belly is a bit different from other uh, people, contemporaries of his time. He um, is a multi-instrumentalist, so he actually plays the 12-string guitar most of the time. Um, hmm. And an old kind of accordion. And uh, But also some of the times he's just um, singing and like stamping his foot or clapping his hands to keep rhythm. Like It's like it's just him singing and like That's completely cool. bare bones. Yeah. So... Uh, I think probably if you were to go through this album, you could get a pretty clear picture for what stuff is like, um, with like the bourgeois blues or black Betty or green corn. These are all kind of very, um, typical no style songs that he did black Betty. Um, yeah. I mean, I knew that spider bait covered it, but I didn't know it went back this far. <laughs> <laughs> that's the same one right we're talking about yeah, the same yeah, song yeah yeah, yeah. so Spider-Man covered a, a band from the 70s called Ram Jim who kind of okay. made it really famous and then um, yeah so it's not like exactly the same obviously it's no no um, cause, it's a very modern take on it yeah because him singing Black Betty is one of the songs where he's just stomping and singing you know Black Betty had a child oh lord that thing gone wild oh lord and just kind of stamping and clapping the whole time mm. um, comparatively to the like eight guitar solos the 70s band has. And then uh, the distorted mandolin that Spider-Bait had? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, Australia. Um, I just ama- so it's I've- amazing how they take, you know, I mean, it's amazing, you know, if it's written by Lead Belly or if it came from earlier, the evolution of that song and how it's mm. changed is really stunning. Yeah, I think that's kind of one of the points I wanted to get across where if you if you – Similarly, if you like watch Oh Brother, We're Out There and listen to the soundtrack mm. and you listen to this kind of music, you get the idea, I think, of how music is changing. So, you know, post, sorry, pre like 20th century music at that point is like institutionalized. You're taught the piano, you play in a concert hall and you play all these classical pieces. Um, but now because people have access to recording technology and have all these different cultural experiences, like being the child of slaves or grandson of slaves. They have all these like cultural songs that haven't ever been played before or sung before. And those are brought to uh, the mainstay. So Mm. um, Lead Belly himself is actually fairly infamous when he was alive. Um, I won't say the name of the article because it's, I don't want to get canceled, but the uh, Life magazine ran like a three-page spread on mm. Lead Belly and like the effect he was having on like listeners and mm. um, people of color around the time. Um, and he was also like in and out of the prison system in the 40s a whole bunch uh, before right. he started getting a little more famous and meeting people like Woody Guthrie. Um so yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, he's super influential. So uh, on like the Wikipedia page, there's like a list of like people who credit him with being their inspiration. And it's like Kurt Cobain, uh, Bob Dylan, Pete Seeger, like George mm. Harrison saying like, no lead belly, no Beatles. And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like this is like, he's his, well, like his music is hard to find the effects of it are everywhere in the modern music scene. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what, I don't know, like the, like this album, it's interesting and there's character oozing out of it, but it's not the most like musically fascinating or most condensed blues record. Um, But it's just kind of the soul of the thing is just so there. And you kind of get that when you listen to it. Yeah. I think one of the important things to learn as a musician is that you're standing kind of on the shoulders of many, many, many people who've come before you. Yeah. And there's, yeah, there's so much that kind of is, is to be drawn from that. And actually I was also listening to like a bit of old Bob Dylan this past three weeks and he draws so much influence from Woody Guthrie. It's just really interesting, you know, the people that come before and the people that influence those afterwards and stuff. It's just, 
It's quite fascinating, actually. I will, yeah, it's. I will give sorry. it a proper listen. This Lead Belly one. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. There aren't any songs on this on this album about this particularly, but he's also one of the few people at the time who started making folk music about current figures. So he has songs uh-huh. about like Teddy Roosevelt and Hitler and wow. like kind of talking about them and how they don't like the black man and that kind of stuff. And it's really fascinating because a lot of the folk musicians um, chose to make more kind of like vague story based kind of songs that are general. So people could kind of listen to them, understand them. But Lead Belly is really, I don't know, there's a bit of an anger to him when it comes to talking about people um, rightly so I and, imagine. And, and how he's treated obviously yeah 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 lead belly very very interesting fantastic yeah um just uh, before we finish up on our 1930s segment um after after choosing and swapping albums um john ringhofer and i were chatting about the 1930s and he sent me a whole bunch of like electronic music from 1931 Okay. Um, that was somehow, I, I still don't quite understand this, somehow recorded onto film stock um, <laughs> rather because tape didn't exist or something like this. Like um, I, so he says, um, where was it? Um, there is an artist yeah, so sound collage made on film stock and um and there's Russian drawn sound. So it's like 1930s electronic music with animation from 90 like it I need to put some links in the show notes. That I'm going to try wild. and understand it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to try and understand it for the next little while. But it sounds like there was a lot of different things going on in the 1930s. So <laughs> there you go. I um, yeah, I'm just always stunned at what people can do with limited technology um, when they have the creativity. So, you know, <laughs> there you go. All right. I will mention time. Yep. You are partially to blame for my first one, Usher. Um, mm-hmm. With uh, hearing a very tantalizing amount of ska-based music in the Bluey soundtrack. Yeah. Um, I realized also that it is one of the uh, one of my favorite ska albums anniversaries, the 25th anniversary of Real Big Fish's Turn the Radio Off. I um, saw this. Yeah. Yeah. So I have this on CD, um, obviously, but this album I listened to so much when I was a teenager. It's so good. It's like pure distilled. 90s third wave ska and is there's like nothing else to it it's just unapologetic <laughs> through and through and yeah. i love the pieces um nice it has some of real big fish's more famous songs off it like um sell out or beer or everything sucks are all off this album they're kind of their big hits um, oh, i so. think i remember you sending me everything sucks when we were talking about ska a while back <laughs> I love it. Anyway, this we album were, has a, it sounds like chicken episode. Yeah, this album has a special place in my heart. Um, as does Real Big Fish. Um, nice. And then second, um, the third album from a New York band called Lightning Bug is the name of the band. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the name of the album actually? Uh, I don't have my iTunes open. Um, this is a. It's called Color of the Sky, and this is a shoegaze outfit indie pop band from new york and it's really beautiful this record it's kind of i don't know like a cold beach cold sunny beach record um Mm -hmm. if i wasn't trying to be a good boy and not just only ever review shoegaze albums um this would be this would be review worthy from me it's really really good um even the even the knobheads at pitchfork liked it like the it's a it's not just a shoegaze affair it's actually some some musical depth to it which i quite enjoy Nice. Um, yeah, lightning bug. Give it a listen. Okay. And then, uh, lastly, a uh, band called Culture Abuse. Uh, uh, 
They're like an American surf rock band, which apparently they're defunct now. I did, I found this out, but a buddy of mine showed them to me over the weekend. Um, and I do enjoy kind of surf rock, pop rock in this kind of form. So it's been a rotation on these hot summer days in Vancouver. And mm-hmm. I don't know, it's just kind of, I love that warm distortion, guitar driven, simple songs. It's perfect for that kind of thing. So I've just been listening to a bunch of them. Anyway, nice. That's all mine. How about you, sir? Uh, I just have three. Um, the first is I thought about an old compilation I listened to when I was younger that I wanted to find again. It was an indie anthems um, album from <laughs> 2002, I think. Um, do you remember me sending you this? Yeah, yeah. So I found it on Discogs and then reconstructed the the album on Spotify minus like two songs. And um, a lot of the songs I just kind of glossed over, but there were a few standouts to me. Um, so Josh and I have been tweeting back and forth about Harvey Danger and um, Flagpole Sitter. So yeah. If you don't know this song, it is an amazing song. I don't know why it's not on Spotify, but it's just there's something in the chord structure and that bass line you were saying that's mm-hmm. like just beautiful. I think it uses the minor five, and I love this song to bits. It's so weird, but it's also so great. Um, did you want to say anything about Harvey Danger or are you good? Yeah, I mean, um, obviously a bit of a one-hit wonder. Uh, and I think this song is kind of like, I don't know. It signifies to me somewhat the end of the nineties. Like this is a really popified version of a grunge song and it's done really, really well. Like it's Mm. appealing, but it has all those like roots of like angst and depression over this like really poppy kind of veneer and it's so interesting to me that um the song clicks so well but i think mm. it also kind of marks the end of the 90s in some some way to me yeah 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 there there are a few other and there things like fat boy slim's praise you um i actually <laughs> really enjoy a bunch of fat boy slim songs like weapon of choice and that sort of thing um and then there was this other one called if i could talk i'd tell you uh, the Lemonheads. Do you know who they are? I know the Lemonheads, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, this playlist, this Indie Anthems one, has a lot of like really good songs on it. You know, it's got classics like Song 2, um, Prisoner of Society, Josie by Blink-182. Um, it's got, you know, just a whole bunch of really interesting <laughs> tracks. It's even got like Karma Police and then Tears. I love how it's and- marketed as Indie Anthems and some of these are like the biggest bands and the biggest songs of the, of the year. Yeah, I don't know what that's about. Like some of them definitely are indie anthems, but then you've got like Sinead O'Connor on there, so I don't yeah, really and, know what's going on. Anyone claiming Blur is an indie band needs to smack in the head. <laughs> well, they have Frenzel Rom on here and Jebediah, so it is a bit indie. Sure, so um, um, Anyway, it's a bit ridiculous. It's just kind of one of those things that like a friend of mine had when I was growing up and so we'd listen to yeah. it and... Yeah, you know, yeah. you know those compilations that kind of get stuck in your head. There's some really crappy songs on there as well. So, whatever. Um, secondly, <laughs> um, I've been listening to a great new EP by a man, a guy named um, Frank Henry, um, and it's called Warm and Wide Point O Two. And so this guy does the strings on Bier's albums, um, mm-hmm. and he is a singer songwriter in his own right. And he's released this new EP just over the past few weeks. And it is very beautiful. I love this EP. It's kind of like an interesting mix of Sufjan and Bonnie Ver. Um, like some of the some of the way uh, parts that he sings sound incredibly like All Delighted People by Sufjan. And then other parts sound like Forever Forever Ago. So if you like either one of those records, check this out, definitely. Mm. Did you give it a listen at all? Or? I gave it a small listen. It sounded a little too Sufiani for me, personally. Yeah, it's fine. But That's all good. One day. Um, my last one is a bit of a weird one. 
Um, I've been playing the game Cruelty Squad for the past few weeks and I've been listening to the soundtrack for this game. Uh, if you don't know, it's kind of like a bit of an indie darling at the moment. Um, uh, it's kind of, yeah, interesting art style and and um, a kind of shooter of a kind. Um, the soundtrack itself kind of lends itself to the visuals of the game being very um, chaotic <laughs> and dissonant um but it's but there are actually some very pretty and moving moments in this soundtrack i know that sounds bizarre to think but um i just like the way it's written there's kind of like awkward pauses and unusual arrangements and at first i was listening to it and didn't like it but because there were a lot of like dissonant passages and it sounds like there's multiple keys on top of each other but mm. the tone and the use of like these terrible MIDI sounds and stuff has kind of grown on me in a weird way. Um, you can't find this on Spotify. It's just on the Steam. You can just buy it through Steam. But I'll put um, the YouTube soundtrack link in the show notes. So if you're up for something a little bit weird, then give this <laughs> a listen. <laughs> I mean, looking at photos from the game itself... I think it hurt my brain. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the aesthetic is what people kind of complain about. I mean, if you've played like Marathon from the 1990s by Bungie, it's similar in its terrible use of like gaudy textures and that sort of thing. Um, Yeah, it's deliberately going for this very gaudy um, looking aesthetic. Um, But, you know, it's it's a game beneath it beneath all the kind of veneer of craziness so yeah anyway i just i've been listening to the music and just kind of thinking about the interesting connection between the chaos of the game and the chaos of the music and um i've come out kind of enjoying it so yeah anyway (laughs) um i think that's it for us yeah cool um, thank you for listening to another episode of what we're listening to. Uh, this is our 33rd episode. Ooh. Pretty cool. Uh, I don't know what that means. Um, but 33 <laughs> is big and we've come a long way. So um, if you like this episode, please share it around uh, with your friends, either on socials or, you know, showing them on your phone. You can do that. Um, please follow us on Twitter and uh podcasts apps whatever you like um instagram facebook all those kinds of things um leave us a comment on apple podcasts if you like um and that will just help us be bumped up the rungs a little bit of the uh, podcasting categories uh anyway we look forward to chatting again next time and see you around see you josh see you mate bye